Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Proms in the Pub. My name is Rainer Hirsch. I am a conductor and comedian. And this is my truly unofficial podcast about one of the greatest if not the greatest music festivals on the planet, the BBC Proms. When you hear the word proms, you think about music, not about money. But the proms has to be partly about money. Orchestras and soloists don't just magically appear on the stage at the Albert Hall. Somebody is paying them to be there because performing is how they earn their living. And later in this series, I'll be talking to one of the many concert agents who supplies artists to the BBC and negotiate their fees. Artist fees are one thing, what about all the rest? How much does it all cost? Well, it's hard to say. You can imagine that a multi-layered event like this dips into all sorts of BBC budget. In 2017, the Radio Times reported a figure of £10 million, of which, so it said, £5 million was made back in box office receipts, leaving £5 million to be made up by licence fee payers. If you live outside the UK, the licence fee is an amount you have to pay every year if you own a TV, basically. It's currently £159 for a colour and £53.50 for a black and white TV. Probably like you, I can't actually remember the last time I saw a black and white TV, except when my previously colour TV went on the blink. This income is used to fund the annual refurbishment of the BBC Director General's private jacuzzi and some programmes. If you're BBC lawyers listening to this, by the way, that was a joke. The Director General, who earns over three times more than the Prime Minister, £525,000 a year, can easily afford to refurbish his own jacuzzi. It's a good-ish system which produces all that advert-free content if you live in the UK. And if you contrast it with American TV, which has so many commercials, they have to show a commercial in the middle of the commercials to remind you what it was you're watching. It's a bloody great system. But bear in mind, that Radio Times figure was five years ago, since when prices have gone up and post-pandemic audiences down. Plus, it does come from the Radio Times, which is published by a company closely associated with the BBC. Not saying they're not telling the truth, just that there are bound to be different ways of looking at this, some rosy, some not so rosy. But, whichever way you cut it, the proms costs a significant wedge, and while it's a much-loved institution, we have to be honest and admit that most people who pay that £5 million or whatever it is, don't go. Is it right that all those decent folk out there who prefer football and Love Island should be coughing up so that people like us can swap opus numbers and key signatures and swoon over Ethel Smythe's The Wreckers? Then there is the Albert Hall. The venue where the proms mostly take place is not run by the Beeb. Its involvement is brought into focus when you buy a ticket to attend the proms. 
The cheapest way of getting in is the famous £6 for a promenade ticket. That is, six quid for a ticket only available online on the day, see episode four. But when you come to buy it, you will find it is plus a £1.12p per ticket booking free. Yeah, but every ticket has to be booked, hasn't it? Why didn't you just call it £7.12p in the first place? Then, on checkout, you're invited to donate to help support the Albert Hall's recovery from COVID. I didn't know a building that size could actually contract COVID, but hey, a drop-down menu invites donations of sums up to £100 or other. Being naturally cheeky, I used other to experiment with imaginary donations ranging from £5 to £50 million, just to see at what point the drop-down menu had any shame because the Royal Albert Hall is a registered charity all right, but one with a more than slightly suspect governing body, made up as it is of people who also own approximately one quarter of the seats. On all ordinary lettings, those people can generate a wad of cash by selling access to their seats, like tickets, usually through the box office, but frankly, through anyone they can make the most money from. Then there is the, not to be sniffed at, value of the lease on the seats themselves, the lease that bestows their ownership. Each lease is worth between £165 and £200,000 per seat, depending on where it is in the hall. Like all property in London, prices gradually creeping up all the time. There are often a few for sale on Harrods Estates, part of the Harrods Group, and always provide interesting reading. And I quote, A pair of adjoining stall seats in stalls M. Guide price, £350,000. This pair of stall seats in the world's most prestigious concert hall are located on the aisle on row 4 in stalls M and command exceptional views of the main stage and auditorium. Stalls M are on the western side of the hall and conveniently situated close to the numerous bars and restaurants in the hall and are easily accessible from the main entrance lobby. Easily accessible from the main entrance lobby, like you can get to them from the front door. I should hope so for £350,000. They would have been £370,000 if they were slightly closer to the tube. So, it's a charity whose governor's interests are well and truly conflicted. Decisions they make about the hall are bound to affect the value of their private assets, the seats, which are worth millions. Suffered a bit during Covid, did we? Yeah, join the back of the queue. Donation? Uh, not this time. In fact, I was rather hoping you could lend me a few quid. All this is by way of introducing my guest for this episode. Norman Lebrecht is one of our most celebrated writers, probably the only writer, on the business of classical music. He's been a columnist for the Daily Telegraph and assistant editor of the London Evening Standard, written books, both fiction and non-fiction, and runs a wildly successful website called Slip Disc the world's most read cultural website with a readership of 2 million visitors a month. He is unashamedly pugnacious in his opinions about the industry and with it the proms. And I was delighted when he agreed to speak to us. OK, he had actually forgot we were coming when we rang on his doorbell in leafy northwest London, but he quickly put on some clothes, regained his composure and was his fascinating self. When I read your bios, mm. I mean, you've, there's so much... Of, online about you. I mean, you, are, you live online now in a big part of your presence is online. I know you have many other strings to your back. But the biographies, they all talk about um, Norman Lebrecht, the places you studied. You studied, you know, quite strict, you know, Jewish universities. Can I get this out of the way to translate this for an, somebody who isn't 
Jewish. Mm-hmm. Did you study to be a rabbi? Was that part of No, that? I went to rabbinical college when I was 16, yeah. uh, because it was the easiest way of getting away from home. Right. And uh, it was never my intention to be a rabbi, but I did want to do intensive Talmud study, which I did then. Yeah. And uh, then I went on to university in Israel, um, but, um, which was, a, I lived in Israel for seven years. It was a fantastic part yeah. of my life. Yeah. Um, I, in needing to get away from an oppressive home, I'll tell you one thing I don't get when I read your bio, though, mm. is I don't get a picture of little Norman um, uh, going off to his violin lesson oh, God, or, no. or something. No, no, was there it. anything like that? I hated that? it. No, I hated it. Um, there was a wicked stepmother who put me on the violin and the piano, and I played them, but I had very poor dexterity. And I knew... I had a good ear. I mean, I had, um, I had perfect pictures as a kid, and I could harmonise anything, and I could remember anything. But when it came to actually making it with your fingers, no, not me. Mm. Um, so I knew immediately there were people who were going to be able to do this much easier and much better than I can. Don't waste your time doing it. And don't, why, why take the pain? You know, you, you hear swimmers in the, the, the Commonwealth Games saying, and we only get up every morning at 2.30 in order to drive for 100 miles and get into the pool and it was frozen and we had to break the ice. That's what playing the violin felt to me. So, I mean, uh, there, is, there is a moment mm. that you go from this strict upbringing mm. to being gripped by music. I mean, some people, I went to the opera and I saw Travi Adams. It was really wonderful. Was it anything like that? No, no, no. There were, there were, there were memories. There were, stro- there were strong memories of concerts that I went to and operas that I went to. I remember seeing Heifetz um, quite late in his performing career. Wow. In, in Israel? In Israel. Because he performed there quite a lot. He he, no, taught. he didn't. He did, no, 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 that's the point. Oh, right. He went there in the early 50s, and uh, he played the early sonata of Richard Strauss and some Holocaust survivor, and then tried to beat him up because Strauss had been head of the Reichsmusikkammer yeah. in Nazi Germany. Yeah. And Heifert said he would never come back. And then uh, Piotr Gorski persuaded him to come and give one farewell recital. I remember it vividly because it was in it was in the big concert hall in Jerusalem, being in Elma. Golda Meir was prime minister, and she turned out with her entire cabinet, um, sitting there in the front row as Heifetz comes on stage, and it was you know just one of the most immersive performances you can imagine. This man who could do anything with the violin—that's illegal. Nobody should be allowed to play the violin that way because everybody else would just have to give up. But yes, to, to hear Heifetz in those circumstances, yeah, I mean, that's something that, that is, is formative in certain ways. So there are a lot of performances. I had Casals, oh. who must have been, he was conducting, didn't play anymore. Mm. They put on a little surprise for him, and at the end of the concert, the curtain opened, and there was a kibbutz choir behind the orchestra, which sang his favourite song of the birds, the Catalan song of the birds. They used to do that as an encore, didn't they? they? Yes, and they sang it in Hebrew, and he'd never heard it in anything other than Catalan before. And there's this 90-year-old man completely absorbed in that experience. So, yes, there were a lot of musical experience, and there were a lot of musical questions that I had, and it became more and more important as I advanced sort of into the age where you start thinking about the bigger questions about forming relationships and having, having children and the meaning of it all and so forth. And mm. part of the meaning of it all for me was music. What is it all about? Why does it do these things to me? Why does it make me, this kind of chord make me feel this way? Why, 
um, does this work always command my attention, no matter how badly it's played? Yeah. Um, Whatever you do with why, it, there are some pieces that survive. Aren't that's there? right. Yeah. However yeah. bad the performance. Yeah. Why do I feel that nobody has got to the bottom of Gustav Mahler? Because nobody at that time had bothered to look at his Jewish roots, which is what I did for the first time. Um, all of these questions. And so by the end of my 20s, I'd been working in television news. I'd been covering you know, wars and revolutions and pandas born at the zoo and all the stuff that you do. <laughs> and, Cats and trees. I, I knew at 29, I knew I had to get out. I knew that uh, television is basically a daily role of ephemera. And I wanted something more substantial. And I, so I returned to writing and I started writing for newspapers and... Um, and had a few ideas for books and started writing those. Yeah, well, you have written <laughs> absolutely everybody and their dog. Uh, you have also written novels and mm. uh, I rather entertainingly saw one interview with, which you gave in America, which the gentleman described you as having won the White Bread Prize. <laughs> <laughs> which I thought, well, that's going to be, that's got a slightly you know, less important than the Brown Bread Prize. Mm. But, you know, I think, anyway. And then you, um, of course, the, the thing that we, you know, we're, we're talking about here is, is the proms. Can you can you remember going to the proms for the first time, experiencing oh, it? Yeah, I was taken as a kid. Don't remember much of that. As a kid, I went more to the festival hall. I saw more people at the festival hall than I did at the proms. Yeah. Um, in my 20s, I started going and heard some excruciating performances, um, usually of some new commission together with the Eroica, and it was hard to know which was worse because <laughs> they were both played by a BBC orchestra from outside London. Um, right. Let us that say, that, let us draw a court. Go a on, curtain, say, we can say. Curtain over these episodes. Are you, no, think, no. are you talking about the Northern Orchestra as was? The Philharmonic? Are we talking the Scottish no, or the no, Welsh? No, 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 no. Wild horses won't drag it. I'm going to say these names. So I, can, I can see your tell. Oh, the, oh, I mean, there was the Midlands Orchestra as well. Do you remember the Midlands Orchestra? And the, and they played at the prompt. They all played at the proms. Right. They all played. You know, by the 1970s, they didn't know what to do with them. Mm. And when um, the BBC decided there was going to be a radical cull, uh, there was a national strike, and the proms were silenced for about three weeks. Right. And eventually there was a settlement, and some poor chap at the BBC paid for it with his career. And Head the, of music. And the orchestras were dismantled, and we all lived happily ever after. Okay. Let me put you on pause there, and let's try and remember one performance you've been to at the proms, which is like, ah, uh, this was that was a special thing that I saw there. Can you remember anything you saw there, I, even if it was, you know, last year? Was there anything you all heard or? Oh, amazing things! Amazing things! I mean, you know, Claudio Vado doing doing Mahler second, um, just explosive. Um, there was a Mahler eight I heard there. There were uh, all sorts of things. There was a there was a Messiaen. Oh, God. Tarangalina? No, it wasn't. It was the opera. It's the mm. one that goes on forever and then beyond. I mean, like, longer than Wagner, but with less action. <laughs> <laughs> and I was sitting in like a box... Like Wagner with, without the jokes. And I was sitting in a box with Mark Thompson, who was Director General of the BBC. Yeah. And I was being as rude as I possibly could, because I knew that Mark um, was, a, was totally besotted with Messiaen. 
which was why he was insisting that I accompany him to this opera. And we'd had this argument before, and we kept on having it right through the piece, and neither of us changed our minds, but it was... That was quite, quite an afternoon. I don't think it was very full. Huh. yes. Um, other proms. Oh, my God. There was a late night with Marie-Joël Puresh. Oh, wow, yes. Portuguese pianist. 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 Portuguese Doing the pianist. nocturnes, was that? Doing the nocturnes. Firstly... A, a, a Portuguese lady of advanced years and ample grandchildren, no doubt. It's 10 o'clock at night and, you know, it, that's quite uh, a, a time to be waiting for a piano recital. And then a page turner comes on and it's one of her grandsons and he is dressed in this um, translucent white shirt that is open a couple of buttons too far and it is a dramatic tour de force on her part that she's brought on someone who's going to draw every eye in the house while she goes and works her magic on the Chopin. And she did. And I was with somebody from the pop side of the music business, a, a head honcho um, who didn't do classical at all, who understood that classical is part of the music world but didn't actually do it. And he was sat there riveted through the Chopin recital. I mean, that sort of thing you don't forget. Yeah. Um, the Baron Boy Ring. I mean, that whole year of 2013, mm. you didn't want to miss a prom. Mm. Um, it probably blew the budget for about three years of proms, but it was Wagner, Verdi, Britain all summer. I mean, how do you leave London for that? Yeah, well, that was Roger Wright. He was, mm. he was um, you know, controller of Radio 3 and in charge mm. of the problems. And he was, he was probably, like, doing the controller of Radio 3, equivalent of nicking all the, you know, the stapler, basically. He's spending <laughs> everything. He's going, listen, OK, whoever follows me. <laughs> and look what happened since. Excuse me. <laughs> Mind yeah. you, to Roger's credit, he was the least controlling controller that I've ever known. Really? And, and I think I've known them all since, since the 70s. Yeah. But he was the least, um, the least interfering. He had his ideas, he put them into practice, mm. uh, but he let the team get on with, with, with most things. And he was simultaneously running Radio 3 and the Proms, which of course is only one job. Except, of course, in the present day BBC, it's now... You know, two people are officially doing separate jobs and several others are assisting them. Yeah. Um, one, other, one little thing which has become a slight running uh, element of this uh, podcast is Mahler's Seventh Symphony. And I know, and this is, I know this is mm. a slight departure from the throw, from the flow of our, concert, from the bom, flow of our bom, conversation. Boom, 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 boom. Where's the metro? <laughs> exactly. There is that. Tell me about tell me about your because you've written a lot about Mahler. Mm. I mean, you say you 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 you've discussed extensively his Jewishness, his background, mm. and the influence that had on his music. Tell me about Mahler's Seven because I have been sort of podcastly in denial about the value. There are two his there's two concerts at the end of this season mm. presented by Berlin Philharmonic. One is Mahler Seven. Mm -hmm. And the other is Schnitka Viola Concerto, and I'm a rather bad viola player, so I want to sit at the front and see what happens, Ooh. followed by uh, Shostakovich. And I decided, which one am I going to go? I'm going to go to the mm -hmm. Schnitka and the Shostakovich, and now I'm slightly regretting that. Tell me why I should have chosen the Mahler oh, Seventh Symphony. I would have preferred the Martineau Viola Concerto and Mahler Six, but, <laughs> since, <laughs> but since I'm not the controlling controller, yeah. um, not much I can do about it. Um, what is it about Mahler 7? It is um, 
nobody quite got it. I mean, Bruno, Bruno Walter, who was probably the conductor who was closest to Mahler, never did it. Um, Klemperer did it very, very, very badly. Um, nobody can quite work out what those two nocturnalities were and where Mahler is going in it. And it's actually, it's a betwixt and between thing. It's, it's, it's as, as our German ancestors would say, nicht dahin und nicht daher. Ah, jawohl. Uh, and, um, and you hear both the hin and the her in it. Um, and he's, he's just sort of piling it in and not quite sure himself what it's all going to. And then suddenly there is a performance before he can sort it out. Often with Mahler, he puts a piece on and then comes back to it a couple of years later and edits it and you know, puts it into shape. In the last winter of his life, the winter of 1910-11, uh, he is, the last thing that he works on is a new edition of the Fifth Symphony. Fifth Symphony has been around for 10 years, mm, yeah. but he's not happy with it and he's got to put it right and he manages to put it right before he dies. Seventh, he never got around to revising. So it, having done it, it then goes to Prague. It is the first time that he is performing something major. I think it's the first time in what is his homeland, given that he came from around those parts. And it's a huge success there. So yeah, why bother? Leave it alone. <laughs> um, it, it, it is a kind of, I think you have to see it as a companion piece to the Third Symphony. And nobody got the Third Symphony either, although it's a masterpiece. But the Third Symphony is really the first ecological protest that we have in, mu in music. It oh, is the first time that we see a symphonic work that says, what the is happening to our world? Just look around. You know, the, 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 the landscape, the ecology, everything is being destroyed. We're being industrialized out of our formerly hard but healthy way of living. Yeah. And, and we actually need to get back to those simplicities and see where it's all, where it's all coming from. The, the seventh sort of takes that theme up, only rather more gently. And it's got some good work for the brass. Okay. I mean, I, I would not um, walk a very long way <laughs> to hear the seventh in the way that I would for some... Yeah, you know, I'm going to go to Torblach this summer. Right. To hear the ninth, yeah. which I can't remember how many times I've heard the ninth, right. but there's a bunch of musicians doing it on the mus on the instruments of Mahler's time. Can yeah. I wait? No, I can't. Well, I got to hear that. So, uh, Frank, is not number nine your favourite? I know. I'm oh. sorry. You're going to go. Oh, I can't have a favourite. You're on this island oh. disc. You can only take one minor symphony with you. Which one is it, Norman the Brecht? Uh, oh, oh, I think I'll be Elizabeth Schwarzkopf and pick eight records <laughs> sung, by, sung by me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm um, going to. The, the ninth is close. The ninth is close to it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah maybe the ninth, Desolate Fontaine, or maybe the first. I mean, there's so much going on in the first. There's so much about Mahler and autobiography and Freud in the first. Yeah. That the the for me, one of the keys to understanding Mahler is, is the affinity with Freud. He was the only... Freud said, this isn't me, Freud said, um, after his four-and-a-half-hour session with Mahler in the summer of 1910, that this was the first person who had understood him intuitively. Didn't have to explain anything. They were singing off the same sheet. Yeah. And an awful lot of that can be found in Mahler's first, and as somebody who's interested in psychoanalysis and has written a certain amount about it. Um, it might be the first, it might be the ninth. Can, can I have a two-sided LP? <laughs> well, it's gonna, have to, it's gonna be one of the, uh, some specially 
you know, with very small grooves on it because yeah. um, each one of them will occupy. Mm. But for you, I think, as I say... <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay, end of detour, mm. uh, the proms. Mm. Oh, so you talked about 1930... You talked about 2013 and the Maria-Jaul Pires mm. and all those other things that went on. For you, the proms has had a kind of golden period. It has, like, had a period... Or at least years which were better than others. Oh, yeah, sure. Oh, sure. I mean, you, you look through the legacy of two and a half controllers, and those were pretty good years. And those were the Drummond years, mm. the Nick Kenyon years, the Roger Wright years. Right. And there was, there was some pretty amazing stuff. And you would go to the Proms Press Conference in a state of some excitement, which was lubricated into greater excitement <laughs> as the evening wore on. Yeah. And, and you saw the stuff that was being put together and the thing always built up into this crescendo of world orchestras that piled in in the last couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, that was part of the rhythm of life, not just musical life. That's, that's how one, one organised one's calendar. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Uh, let me just, just sort of say some words to you and hear your reaction to BBC orchestras. Mm. Um, they appear at the proms. Mm -hmm. I think you kind of said in the past that they, it felt they were kind of the fillers, basically, before the main event. Do you, do you think that's correct? BBC orchestras, like most orchestras, have their good times and their bad times. Um, the question of what to do with them is, has been something that has been kicked into the long grasses over and over and over again. Yeah. And we're now starting to reap 
the I'm going to have to be serious for this. So don't yeah, no, really no, that's well, fine. No, no, we absolutely ruin your podcast. Why do you think by we're talking here? Why do you think we're here? Normally? I don't know. I it's thought you just all... wanted me to tell jokes. <laughs> <laughs> have you heard the one about Marla and the crocodile? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, but we'll have that punchline at the end. Okay. Go, go on. I'm going to go. <laughs> we have a peculiar system in this country, whereby the Arts Council funds orchestras all over the country. And the BBC funds its own orchestras, and the two never talk. There is no discussion. There is no orchestral strategy. There is no reason why London should have nine orchestras and Bristol none, or Southampton none, or Leeds none, apart from the Opera Orchestra, which isn't, uh, which is sort of part of the Opera House. Um, there is utter chaos, and the result—it's it, the result of of sort of. Um, of bureaucratic backturning. I've got my patch, you've got yours, we don't have to talk about it. Mm. And at various times, people, both within the BBC and within the Arts Council, well-intentioned people, decent people, have said to each other, come on, let's put our heads together and see if we can, in some way or other, rationalise this without abolishing orchestras or abolishing orchestral jobs. Let's just see if we can't spread the cake a little bit more fairly, if we can't, why the words, level up. Can we level up some orchestras? Mm. Can we actually make ourselves and the musicians feel that they're performing a useful task rather than something that was set in stone after the, the strike of the 1970s? And every time these well-intentioned people got around a table, one or other of them would get up and run screaming through the door saying, no, 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 this meeting hasn't taken place. And indeed, there's no record of it. Um, so... It, it, the, these are two organisations that have been trying to protect their patch, fearful that in some way or other, one of them would, would, would in sort of triumph. The only rationale for bringing in Alan Davey as head of Radio 3 and ultimately head of the BBC orchestras was that he'd been DG of the... He'd, he'd been head of the Arts Council. Right. So coming in from Arts Council England to the BBC, you would think maybe that dialogue could, could have been fruitfully resumed. Yeah. That was six years... Seven, eight years ago? Eight right. years ago? It hasn't been. Right. Not a word. Right. Not a word. And so we, we, we've got this situation where nobody, especially in the BBC, knows what these orchestras are for. Mm. And I've heard this from people at all levels and in all parts of the BBC. Right. I am making a major drama series. I have commissioned a wonderful score, um, and I've just had it recorded in Prague. Yeah. Had it recorded in Prague. There are two BBC orchestras in London. There's another one in Manchester. Mm. You are part of the BBC, aren't you? Oh, yes, it's, it's going out primetime BBC One. Nobody knows what they're there for. Nobody even knows. Nobody within the BBC even knows that they're there. Mm. And now, Director General Tim Davey has said, um, well, they're going to have to pay for themselves. Mm. They're going to have to find sources of funding, I think he called it. I don't mm. know what a source of funding is. Is it something you can grow in the garden? I mean, what is a source of funding? Uh, I'm, we've been looking for sources of sources funding of ever funding. since we yeah, started yeah, this. Well, How does this affect... It's now, so, so now, I mean, you know, now what happens is, is basically the BBC Orchestra has been put on notice. They've got until 2025 to find some money on the outside, which doesn't exist. Right. Because if it did exist, the other orchestras would have sucked it up like a Dyson or some other non-Brexit instrument. Mm. And so they don't stand a chance. So we're looking at the end of the BBC orchestras. Maybe one or two will survive. Yeah. Maybe only one. Yeah. But, but you know, the absurdities are such that if you just take Manchester, 
Manchester has a an Arts Council funded orchestra, mm. Halle. It has a BBC Philharmonic. Mm. It has a Manchester Camerata. Mm. And half an hour down the road, it has the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic. Mm. Is there a market for all of those? Has Should one be discussing how that could be rationalised in, in the most positive way to provide more musical input to a broader region? Yes, of course, but nobody's been having that discussion. So what's going to happen now, what's going to have to happen, is the discussion will begin and it's going to be painful and a lot of musicians are going to lose their jobs. Mm. And the problems will not continue in their present form because they won't have that many BBC orchestras to rely on. So, What will they, they do? Well, what will they do? They what would it be like in 10 years' time? Describe to me... Ah. That, I mean, let's, let's just assume mm. that the prom... We, we, we take as read, the mm. proms will still be there in some form. Mm. Mm. They've survived 100 mm. and something years. Yep. So describe to me the season based on those thoughts. I think... Let's think positively. Let's say that at the age of 84, I'm asked to be controller of diminished proms. <laughs> um, where would I look? I would look local, first of all. I mean, you just have to look at the London orchestras. You'll have to see which of the London orchestras has space in their diaries at that time. If it was this summer, they all do. It, let's start with, with the generality of British orchestras, and then let's see what we can bring over to fill the gaps. Um, but the things, it like, is the, the, the things like the grand choral may, stuff that, you know, you can only get done, like they did uh, Verdi um, Requiem at the beginning, and, mm. you know, it was the BBC... BBC Symphony Orchestra, the BBC Symphony Orchestra Chorus, and yeah. all the BBC yeah. singers, and yeah. Uncle Tom Comedy. Yeah. Those things are not going to probably happen so much. They won't happen in quite the same way. I mean, one of the things that has happened down the years is a diminution of the uniqueness of the prom brand, Proms brand. There was a time when visiting orchestras would visit for the Proms, right. and that would be their stop-off. But, but um, you know, Berlin Philharmonic came, and it came only to the Proms. I think with Berlin Philharmonic, that is still the case. Yeah. But often with American orchestras, yeah. they would come to Edinburgh, and then they would drop down to the Proms, and then they would go to Lucerne, and they'd finish off in Salzburg. So yeah. it's just part of, it's just part of it's, if, it's Bel if it's Tuesday, this must be Belgium, right. or the Proms. The, right. the Belgium Proms? <laughs> Do we have Belgium to sponsor the Proms? Well, I think Why has nobody thought of this? They'd be, have a slightly well, higher alcoholic content. Yes, how about the Brussels Sprouts Proms? <laughs> Yeah. The Poirot problems. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, there, is, there is a basic economics of that, which is the fact that you know you can fly from Berlin, do a concert in the evening, and fly back in the next morning. You can't do that from the US. So you need no. to. No. You need, to, I and mean, that's just basic touring. There are some basic questions that need to be asked here. First of all, does the problems need to run from mid July to virtually mid September? Right. Does so it, it might to, be shorter. It might be shorter. Does it need to be every night? Right. Does it need to be an orchestral concert every night? Right. Critically, again, I mean, the, the myopia that goes into this thing, you're asking about rehearsed performances. One of the, the few areas of musical growth, actually musical explosion in this country, has been country house operas. They're everywhere. Yeah. You can't cross a road without seeing one. Right. And so you have, you have not just Glyndebourne. I mean, Glyndebourne invented the brand and kept it alive on its own for about 70 years. Yeah. But now you've got Glyndebourne, you've got Garsington, you've got Grange Park, you've got the other Grange, you've got um, um, the, one, uh, the one in Leicestershire, Neville Holt. Um, Holland Park, you've got, is that in your you've got, you, you've got Holland Park. I mean, literally, they only have to cross the road to get into the promise, don't they? You've got Longborough. 
And these things aren't being seen in London, are they? Mm. Why aren't they being seen, being seen in London? Yeah. Why has no Nobel-winning pers- person within the BBC thought that maybe we should have an opera week at the Bronx mm. in which we do a series of the best of, literally the best of British opera that summer. Yeah. It can be done, and it can be done without BBC orchestras. So yeah. the, the loss of orchestras does not necessarily mean the end of the proms, but it'll just mean a hell of a lot more creative thinking. And there are some fantastic festivals going on along the Atlantic coast in France. I mean, one can do things with them. Um, am I allowed to mention France? Is that... Um, yeah. No. Um, yeah, I... Because I mean, you know, if the I, Belgians don't sponsor it, <laughs> we, can, we can talk to the French. Absolutely. The BBC is the proms, basically. That's how we think of it. It's the BBC proms. Does the BBC need the proms? Does the proms need the BBC? Can they, can they be subtracted from one another and live separate lives? Um, do the proms need the BBC? No. Actually, no. No, I mean, I could, I could pick up the phone to a couple of impresarios and if I said to them, fancy bidding for the proms next year? Yeah, like a shot. Yeah, sure. I've got the Albert Hall for seven weeks. Oh, what can I put on? Yeah. I mean, one, one could actually turn a decent penny at it if it was not the BBC proms. It may be the quality won't be the same. It may be the content will be different. Um, it's unlikely possible, that... Possible there'd be less game show music. Um, but there's also... Other adventurous stuff. Oh, OK, that's interesting. What, new commissions, you mean? Yeah. No, not new commissions. Aren't they doing something with uh, this summer with uh, music for video games? Yeah, yeah. But that, yeah. But that, I mean, we're too old, both of us, to know that that is absolutely huge. And yeah. by the way, those commercial... Promoters you mentioned, that's, mm. the, that's the thing that would survive. I it, mean, what it, would... It, it may well be. It I mean, well because be. you know, the, the Philharmonia and people like that have done those kind of, um, you know, games. Basically, we're talking about computer games live. Mm-hmm. So what happens is the orchestra plays hits from computer... I mean, yeah, don't look at me because I don't know anything <laughs> about it either. But, you know, in my day, it was beep, boop, beep, you know, those kind of mm. pong games. But they play it live and the concerts are absolutely Packed. I mean, they took it on. I think this is going to be the biggest turkey we've ever been involved with, and now they find it's a huge money spender. So, of those things, of the current program, that would survive. But what you wouldn't get, and there's any question about this from a commercial promoter, is you know commissions, new. I mean, you have a few because they felt they had to maintain the tradition. But really, seriously, it would be the problems like that. It would completely change that world recognition. If you put Raymond Gubbay in charge of it, mm. surely, wouldn't it? I think it would. I think he would. Um, Raymond has spent all his life trying to find ways to keep musicians in work. Yeah. And he I would... am one of the ones he's kept in work, and by the way. I mean, uh, so let me just say, I'm not knocking Raymond Gubbay. He's no. a, he's a, a, a hat off, and under the hat is another hat, which I also take off. Yeah. Because exactly that, and musicians know what he's done. But nevertheless, the proms is a very special, you know, class of show yeah. where you know you do get these extraordinary things you otherwise wouldn't hear and, and Raymond Gubbay would say the same thing I cannot present this that the other thing because the people wouldn't come the problems they do it I was talking to someone in the commercial music industry yesterday nothing to do with classical music who said to me the focus now is composers that's what we want we want composers right we want people to write music for everything it, it, it's people are just fed up with, with, um, with pre-syncopated 
rhythms and non-tunes, and, and I'm looking for composers. Right. So to say that there won't be commissions, there will be. Yeah. Uh, it might not be the old BBC tradition of Buggins turn commissions. Have we had somebody from Boosie yet this year? Ah. Oh, let's get someone from Oxford University Press. We haven't given them. It's got to be fair. It's the BBC. Tick, tick, yeah, tick, yeah. tick. So it might not be quite the same type of composer or music. Um, it might be better or it might be worse. But yes, there, was, there, there would still be commissions. There is still a way of maintaining the proms outside the BBC, and this is something that will terrify the BBC. Yeah. I because, mean, because you asked the question, yeah. can the BBC survive without the proms? Yes, it can survive, but it will be seriously damaged. Um, because the brand of the BBC as a public educator now rests on some pretty spindly legs. And the promise is one of them. Interesting. Um, you talked about you're going to, uh, you know, a series of commercial promoters and saying, do you fancy programming the promise? And I'm down like a, like a shot. However, on the 20th of July in Slip Disc, which we'll come to, you mm. know, which is you're mm. hugely successful, very important, widely read uh, blog website about classical music, you said that uh, box office through a box office leak three out of four tickets to the BBC proms are being unsold. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, okay, I, 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 I've firstly, do you stand by that? I've had further box office leaks since then. Right. Um, because, and, can I just say, that's yeah, true. Some, are being, some are sold out. So, mm. I mean, like the Berlin Philharmonics and the other Obviously, big shows. Yeah. So that means that if every, if every, for everyone that's sold out, there have to be three that are completely empty for that yeah. to be. Yeah. So yeah. I'm, I'm not, no. I'm just asking, do you think that's right? Um, was it correct at the time of writing? It was correct at the time, yes. Uh, okay. Is it still correct? No. Uh, what I can say now, um, as of information from yesterday, um, is that the proms are down 33% on general proms average sales. If you look at uh, the proms from 2000 until COVID, they were doing, on average, between 88 and I think the top was 93% of capacity, which is incredible for a series that goes on that long and of such variable um, content. Yes. What's happening this year is that they are, as of this moment, one-third down. Mm. And that is a very, very, very conservative estimate. Um, the less conservative estimate is that they are 40% down. Mm. So either way, you look at the proms on the ones that they televise, which are supposedly the more popular ones, mm. and you see lots and lots of empty spaces. You go there yourself, you see lots and lots of empty spaces. Mm. Um, they've done some bold things. They brought the Ukrainian orchestra in, which was lovely. They put them on on a Sunday morning, which was um, interesting. Mm. Um, it a bit of an afterthought. Obviously, well, they, you know, went, exactly. there, yeah. no, there was no right <laughs> no, invasion when they right. programmed no. it. Yeah. But, but they didn't come anywhere near to selling out the hall. Mm. There, this is part of a broader post-COVID problem. The Royal Festival Hall, the Barbican, are in exactly the same straits, and most American orchestras are in the same straits, and some of the research that's coming through from the United States is pretty bleak. I mean, a large part of the audience has not returned. Yeah. Why it hasn't is a much bigger question. Mm. What it means for the proms, and it's the older audience that hasn't returned. Yeah. 
and the promise is not finding a younger audience to replace them. Well, that's, so it, that's it's a bit going obvious. to be, it's, no. it's, uh, what it means, yeah. firstly, a, a kind of air of depression has settled mm. over the whole season. People are aware of this, people at the BBC and people outside the BBC. Secondly, the BBC has shown itself to be quite spectacularly indifferent to its commercial failure. I mean, if this were you or me and we were running the proms, we would not sleep. We would be panicking. We would be looking, how do we bring them in on a sharabang from Essex? <laughs> I mean, it's what Raymond Gubbay would do. Bring them in from Norfolk. Cancel their holidays. Just, you know, do some deal with British Airways to shut down Heathrow and have the proms in Terminal 5. We'd be panicking. Mm. Nobody at the BBC is panicking. It's just business as usual. So, I mean, this is, this is where the thing breaks down. This is where the BBC, by not being a commercial organisation, is not prepared to address commercial realities and will find any number of equivocations in order to shovel the blame onto everyone else. It's probably all my fault anyway. The reason why you're... You're as influential as you are, really. I mean, is is everybody thinks of slip disc. Mm. Can I just get this out of the way? Mm. Is it slip disc as in gramophone slip disc or slip disc as in very painful back? <laughs> I've, um, I've never known. It, it's in gramophone slip disc. I mean, I, I gave it the title slip disc because I'd written a book about the... I'd written a history of the classical record industry, about the decline and fall of the classical yes. record industry. So I thought Slip Disc would be a good way just to continue that narrative. Okay. And, I mean, I've written a number of books that have come out under more gloomy titles than I gave them originally. I wrote a book called When the Music Stops, which was the first history of the classical music business. And I've got it here. When it was translated into American... They called it something else. They called it Who Kills Classical Music. I thought, well, there's nothing I could do about it anyway, but first title, first copies of the book arrived, and I looked at the front, and I thought, that looks all right. And then I looked at the spine, and it said, who killed classical music? Norman Lebrecht. Well, there we go. You, yeah, well, you have your website. <laughs> it's me who does most of the writing, but I also commission some writers and pay them. Um, we, we publish a number of reviews, selected reviews, and, and I'm paying the critics... Uh, actually slightly more than they're being paid in national newspapers uh, and they get a much bigger response to what they write on slip disk so we are we're moving into much more of a review direction it's about content if you can bring people original content they're going to read the site they might have to read some of my bad jokes they might have to read some of my bad headlines poor things you made us um, laugh I don't think that <laughs> do you know what I've contributed to slip disk I, mm. Nina Lalandi my first job yes, in music I, yes. I did a telephonic tour around musical London mm. uh, using the British Music Yearbooks so I worked a lot of organisations that began with A or B, because mm. uh, I didn't get much from that. And <laughs> one of them was the English Bach Festival. It was run by a woman called Lena Lalandio, a woman called Lena Lalandi, who uh, had been awarded uh, an OBE some point in the 70s. And so she, she was referred to around the office as Lena Lalandi OB, which she used every single time. <laughs> and then she, she conked up. So is that kind of an African suffix? It, it might Lalandi OB. It's like um, Chichin Wanaku. It's mm. a famous double bass player, you know, she's set up Chenneke and she's mm. done wonderful things. She was awarded an MBE at one point. Did you hear the joke? 
apparently somebody at Radio 3 reading, you know, in the continuity suite, thinking this must be somebody truly African, announced her as Chichi Nwanaku Chichi Nwanaku Mba. Well, I'm really glad that's coming out on your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. We can say what we want. But you, you have, I mean, so this is, this is, do you think, my actual point about this is, one of the thrusts, if you don't mind me summarising mm. your career, mm. like Can I just say one more thing about Go on, go on, please. please. Just, just one, I don't want to stop you. No, please, no, please just say one, one more thing about Slip Disc is that it's fun. Yeah. And I don't see any other writing about music that's fun. Yeah. And I can take liberties and... And I do, and you know, I've just had something yesterday with, with, with some international piano competition of great prestige mm. where they thought that the best thing to do at this point in history is provide an all male final. And you could report that in any number of dis- different ways, but yeah. um, I thought a picture of dinosaurs having lunch would be a good thing to do. Yeah, I, I saw that post. <laughs> My question You've I suppose, got to send them up a bit. Yeah, people absolutely. take themselves far too seriously. Well, I hope we're doing that on this podcast. I hope we? so too. We yes. are. We're having yeah. Can we have another round? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, we're going to get them in. Actually, it's June on tonight. <laughs> it's quiz night. <laughs> but there won't be a classical music round because nobody gets the questions. But I mean, here's the thing. I mean, just like you run this, uh, your mm. this very big, with a massive reach, mm. the, this website, the, the blog that you have. So also from this very pleasant house in St John's Wood, if you don't mind me saying. Just around the corner from Abbey Road and Lord's Cricket Ground, two of my favourite places. Exactly, what's and, not to like. And, but, and in, in, um, in my forthcoming book, Why Beethoven, which is coming out at the beginning of next year, yeah. I tell the story of how Arthur Schnabel, while he recorded the... Um, Complete Sonata. Complete Sonata, Complete Sonata, Complete Beethoven Sonata, just up the road. Took mm. him seven years, took yeah. his time about it, and, and got to know a little bit about English conditions and English sports. And um, his chief admirer was Neville Cardus. And Cardus... Famous cricketer, the famous cricketing and classical and music specialist. Crossover. And Cardus thought that his life will not have been worth living if he doesn't take Arthur Schnabel to, to Lord's. And so at the end of a hard day at the piano, or possibly the hard morning at the piano, yeah. he takes Schnabel to Lord's and sits him at the pavilion and yeah. shows him what's what. And they watch for a little bit. And uh, Carter says to him, Schnabel, are you, are you starting to enjoy it? Are you starting to understand it? Schnabel said, yes. He says, um, he says, I understand this. When the batsman goes out, he is in. And when he is out, he comes back in, and then it rains. <laughs> <laughs> um, listen, that has been fantastic. Um, can I just ask you, because we are proms-oriented, mm. and then this is slightly at the general direction, but tell me what the proms is. What is the proms? What does that mean? In whatever terms you care to describe it. It's... Um... It's one of those indispensables, like a favourite breakfast cereal. It is something that is a part of our lives because it's always been there, because we were taken there as kids, because we've taken our own kids and maybe our grandchildren there as well. Um, It is something where you know that there is music going on right through the hot summer weeks 
in London. If you go to Berlin, there's bugger all. If you go to Vienna, um, if you go to Prague, there'll be a few students playing in churches. In London, in the heart, actually not in the heart of London, but in, in, in Albertopolis, <laughs> in amongst the museums where the tourists will be going and running in and out all, all through the long day, they can end their day and we can end our day listening to good music at the Royal Albert Hall. In fact, the best music you ever hear at the Royal Albert Hall because the rest of the year it's quite a ragback. And that's what the proms are. And they are more... I mean, they're firstly a civic amenity. They are what makes it worth staying in London through the summer. And then they are a national institution and then they are an international institution because it's a... It is a... It's not a festival... Because a festival provides refreshments. A festival does other things. You know, a festival is... There are no restaurants around the Royal Albert Hall, are there? You've got to walk miles. You know, I mean, if you want a kebab, you've got to get a bus. <laughs> um, it, it, there is nothing festive in that sense about the proms. Nothing is actually laid on. You don't feel, apart from those... Have you ever been invited to a box where, where the Royal Albert Hall has provided the... The yeah. smoked salmon and yeah. stuff. Yes, exactly. But so it, it doesn't have the sense of the package tour that you have in Salzburg or Luzern or Schleswig-Holstein or any of the European festivals or Tanglewood. I mean, gosh, you know, can, can you walk 10 paces in Tanglewood without being hit by a burger? It is the proms. It is what it is. In, in many ways, it, it is... Still the thing that Henry Wood invented in 1895, even though it's not in the same place, and Henry Wood is possibly no longer alive. It is an institution in the way the five-day cricket is an institution. There may be more popular forms of cricket, there may be better ways of playing cricket, but at the heart of it, when it works, there's nothing better than five-day cricket. And when the proms work... And when the atmosphere is right, and when the programming is right, and when the oiling of the wheels is right, they are outstanding. That sounds um, very hopeful. It sounds like somebody who loves the proms, which mm. I think we, we can both agree on, and um, that by hook or crook, it will still be there in another 120 years very hard to imagine it not being there. I mean, just just really impossible. I remember one, you know, one little BBC gathering somewhere in mid-proms uh, in the dead of August, and there was an elderly critic there who was in his 90s, and he'd been coming since before the war. And I said to him, has it changed much? He said, no, it's the proms. Yeah, it is about it is about national identity. It is about um, it's about engagement. It's feeling that we own this. We don't own Eurovision. Nobody feels that Eurovision. I may be wrong. I may be disproved. You may be get you may get thousands of protests, but I, I don't think anybody feels that Eurovision is part of their intrinsic soul. Um, Glassbury does wonderful things in the same way as Glyndebourne does wonderful things, but they are. Um, they're self-standing. 
The proms is history. We've lived through two world wars with the proms. Henry Wood at the start of the First World War said, we can, we're playing Wagner. Wagner. Bugger the Germans, we're playing Wagner. He's our Wagner, right? They are uh, within their DNA, within their narrative, they have the national story. Norman Lebrecht, winner of a white bread prize. To give us our knowing sniggers about that, it should have been Whitbread Prize. And um, he didn't have to put any clothes, by the way. He was perfectly dressed when we arrived. Slip disc, all one word. Check it out. Though you might want to put Slip Disc Norman in Google, or you'll first have to fight your way through about 100 pages of information about the other kind of slip disc. If it was ever widely reported that Norman Lebrecht had actually had a slip disc in his back, I think the internet would explode. Two more people to check out. Firstly, us at www.promsinthepub.co.uk where you'll find all the episodes, info about us and how to get in touch. Then there is our regular special guest, Harry the Piano, harrythepiano.com, who rounds off this episode inspired by the Aurora Orchestra's recent presentation about Beethoven's famous du -du 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 symphony, wondering what it was like before Beethoven actually got to the du -du -du -du. Until next time, enjoy. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered. Glasses start at just 95 bucks, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Every frame's designed in-house, with a huge selection of styles for every face shape. And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. 
Go to warbyparker.com slash covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free. Warbyparker.com slash covered. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.